My name is Sid. I try to multitask, which is my specialty. Um, I'm going to pass around a sign-up sheet, which is one of the things you can do here. Um, if you signed up before, you don't need to sign up again. It's just a way to get better informed about RUF and what we do and why we do it. Um, and then also, we have a Facebook group. I think it's Davidson RUF or something like that. You can look it up and uh, appreciate you just want to check into that. I don't know. I think maybe do you have to join it. I don't think so. I think it's just a page. Um, so anyway, how is everybody doing? Yeah. Does it feel like it rains every Tuesday, or is that just me? <laughs> Doesn't it like some sort of precipitation? It snowed. It snowed you know. But um, so that's the biggest syllable word I'll use all night. Uh, for those who don't know me, I'm Sid Druin. I'm the campus minister with RUF Reformed University Fellowship. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about RUF. RUF is a Christian campus ministry that exists to serve Davidson College and Davidson students. Uh, let me tell you a little bit more. Uh, David, uh, RUF exists for the convinced and the unconvinced, for the believer and the unbeliever. For those of you who are athletes and for those of you who are nunners, or nonners, excuse me, I always get that wrong. It's always, it's always wrong. I just tried to use the slang and I couldn't pull it off, so I'll never go to Nubbit. Okay. For those of you uh, this week who are working hard and winning the battle in the lob- lobby of the library about how much work you have to do when you're bragging to each other about it, and those of you who are winning the battle at the World of Warcraft, because <laughs> you have so little to do. Um, RF exists for those who are here because... You want to know what you don't believe, and those who are here because you want to know what you do believe. In other words, whoever you are, wherever you are, thanks for coming. We're so glad you're here. We hope you feel welcomed uh, by RUF, and we hope that you get to know RUF. Um, and that looks like some of the students up here get to know them, maybe get to know the people next to you if you've been around. And if this is your first, your second, or maybe even your third time ever at RUF, thanks so much for coming. We know that's hard to do, and we want you to especially feel welcomed um, and feel free to ask any questions that you have or to talk to anybody here. Hopefully people will be nice. And there's always snacks if you get really feeling very awkward and your mouth gets dry and you need to get something to drink. Go over there and avail yourself after um, our time together. Okay. So this semester, in large group, we've been studying the life of David. Uh, and this is our third week, I think, of the life of David. And David's life occurs in the first part of the Bible, which is called the Old Testament. It's in the books of First and Second Samuel in particular, uh, but also in the very beginning of First Kings, the first two chapters. Uh, let me give you two reasons why we're studying the life of David. Um, first, David is in so many ways so much like us. His life is filled with successes and failures, with stresses and laughter. And David is so relatable in the way that he handles these things. David gets mad and he messes up big time. But he also sings and he loves with his whole heart. Yet secondly, David is also so much not like us. His life is meant to point us to King Jesus, who's called the son of David, over and over and over again in the New Testament. So the Bible is telling David's story as like a teaser, a trailer to the story of Jesus. And that's something that our title is trying to capture. The title for the series is The God after our own hearts. The God after our own hearts. 
And really what that's trying to say is that, yes, David does give us a picture of a man after God's own heart. Uh, He does show us what the Christian life looks like, but he also is asking us uh, to consider that be more like David is not the takeaway. That's not the story's main point. The life of David is primarily about the God of the universe who enduringly loves people like David and people like us. So our passage tonight, 1 Samuel 18, the first 16 verses, looks backwards and it looks forwards. And I'm just going to do this very quickly. Um, We started a couple weeks ago in 1 Samuel 16, and that's where God chooses his king, an unlikely king, who's going to bring the peace that we all desperately desire. And then in 1 Samuel 17, last week, we look at David, our champion, who defeats the giant of our fears, Goliath, in 1 Samuel 17. And then now in 1 Samuel 18, we're going to see that it's looking forward, not just backwards. And it's actually part of a literary unit. You could look at all three of these chapters, 18, 19, 20 together, but I thought that would be a very, very long reading. And so I spared Melissa. Um... And you all. I, it's, I guess my, my only thing is that's a really great way to see every angle of this triangle of Saul, David, and Jonathan in their relationship. And so let me encourage you, if you're interested, to read alongside large group. We're going to get like little snippets of a huge story. And so if you're interested and you're looking for something to read in the scriptures and the Bible, maybe read alongside what we're doing. Um, we're only a couple chapters in, so it's going to be pretty easy to catch up. All right. So that's a brief background to our passage tonight, but before we study the passage itself, let me pray. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for uh, the students who are here. I pray that you prepare our hearts, uh, that you'd soften them to hear your word, uh, to hear what you'd have to say to us. We believe that this is an appointed time. We believe that this is a time where you do promise to show up, where we open your scriptures and we try to sit beneath them and we try to learn from you. And I pray, Jesus, that you would be glorious, that you'd help me to get out of the way, and you'd help um, your, your son, Jesus, O oh Father, to be high and lifted up. And I pray that we wouldn't forget why we're here, which is to investigate who Jesus is or perhaps to worship him. And I pray that you'd be with all of us, no matter where we are, in that investigation or in that practice of worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I think some of our most honest moments happen when we just lose it, right? When we just absolutely lose it. When every day hurt and anger that we've been shoving deep down inside of our hearts comes out sideways and we cause a scene. I mean, maybe you can think about this in your life. Maybe it was the teenage drama, right? You were there on the front steps and you were weeping uncontrollably for reasons you didn't understand. And your parents said things like hormones, okay? <laughs> maybe it was... It was over winter break, this last winter break, and you were with a sibling, and you were losing it with a sibling. Or maybe it was just a few days ago with a roommate, and you just lost it. Okay. Uh, this past Thursday night, I was walking uh, past the brick house. I was walking to, from my house to campus uh, for freshman small group. Lots of freshman plugs today. I don't know if you noticed this dinner small group. Anyway... Um, we, I was walking there. I live on the other side of the tracks in Davidson. You know what I mean? Like, it's tough over there. <laughs> okay. Um, so I live in Watson Street, and so I have to pass the train tracks, but I also have to pass the brick house. And it was pretty chilly that night, so I really didn't expect to see anybody outside in the patio. And then I looked over, and I saw a few people in the distance, 
And I was like, I wonder what they're doing. And I kind of assumed it would be a smoke break. You know, people go outside even when it's cold to smoke. But then I looked a little closer, and I saw this incredible scene. In fact, I heard it first. It was a scene. One woman was screaming and sobbing at another woman, just losing it. And I did what most of us would do in that sort of situation, right? In like this full force fury of emotion, I just kind of like ducked and covered. Tried to make not make eye contact, I sped walked, right? And so I don't really know if... That's not a word. It, it, the, I think it's hyphenated. Um, I don't really know if those people were students. I don't really know if they were here. Maybe you. what if you was the, in the scene? Um, so don't worry, I didn't make eye contact. Um, but... And I don't really know if the girl, the woman who was shouting and sobbing was drunk, or if she just, this is my impression, that she just had gotten tired of keeping it all under control and trying to pretend to be perfect and having everything be okay. What I did hear in my brief walk by, between sobs, was this angry lament. And it went something like this. I'm always the one who texts you. I'm always the one who calls you to invite you out. You never text me. You never invite me out. Hearing this, I actually, even amidst my awkwardness, almost stopped mid-stride. Because behind the tears and the anger, there was this raw honesty, this vulnerable, crystal clear window pane into what we all really care about. I mean, we can all relate to this woman's grief in some level, can't we? Who hasn't felt missed or overlooked or left out or uninvited? Who here hasn't unconsciously kept some sort of mental tally, a scorecard like you'd have in putt-putt with a small pencil, with who's the better friend, you or your best friend? In fact, I saw a Facebook post where someone actually had a score, me, seven, best friend, three. Literally saw that, okay? Now, maybe that's not you. Maybe you're so busy you don't have time to think these thoughts or have these moments. But let me ask you a question, particularly if that's you or if that's me. Okay? Do you pack your schedule with good deeds so you don't have to put yourself out there for indefinite amounts of time? So you don't have to feel vulnerable for, for more than an hour or half an hour? Do we guard ourselves from these kind of intimate friendships because we're afraid we can get hurt or angry or afraid in these kind of relationships? But at the same time, I want to ask you, if, you're, if you feel too busy to have had this experience, don't you secretly want this relationship at some level? I mean, aside from like the brick house scene, right? But like, don't you really want to have sort of that intimacy? Um, don't you feel like maybe that's what you reserve for boyfriends or girlfriends or maybe a future spouse? But we kind of all want that, don't we? And maybe some of us are actively pursuing it, some of us are actively avoiding it. In our passage tonight, I think we see a picture of what we care about. True friendship. True friendship. That is knowing others truly and being known by others truly. So true friendship is knowing others truly and being known by others truly. And 1 Samuel 18 is speaking about this intimacy by describing a friendship between Jonathan and David and then giving us an extremely uncomfortable emotional scene. Right? Saul has lost it over David. 
and it's uncomfortable, and we want to make we want to avoid eye contact and his spear, for that matter. Okay, <laughs> but anyway, okay. The takeaway of First Samuel chapter eighteen verses one through sixteen is this: it's a life-changing truth. Intimate friendship is a commitment that shows and tells somebody I'm for you. Intimate friendship is a show-and-tell commitment that says, I'm for you. But to be a true friend, we must know that God shows and tells us, I am for you in Jesus Christ. I'm for you in Jesus Christ. Verses 1-16 through demonstrate this truth by highlighting the differences in friendships between Saul and Jonathan, oh sorry, David and Jonathan on one hand, and David and Saul on the other. And so let me approach this text with an outline that's in your handout um, that I'm going to unpack this contrast through. First, you see verses 1 through 5. We see David and Jonathan in true friendship. Then verses 6 through 16, we see David and Saul in false friendship. And thirdly, in verses 1 through 16, I'm saying that we see David and Jesus, the truest friendship. Now, unfortunately, this is my fault, I'm going to go out of order on your outline, so it's going to drive some of you crazy. You're going to have to like mark it up and draw this arrow and just be very frustrated with me. I'm sorry. But we're going to go out of order. And I think this is because the text leans heavily, as you can see from my verse breakdown, towards the relationship with David and Saul. And so I want to focus on that first. So we're going to start with verses 6 through 16. Uh, you can maybe, if you want to change the numbers, put that as number 1 or whatever. I don't Arrow, I don't know. Anyway, um, and we're going to talk about the false friendship of Saul and David. So let's start there, verses 6 through 16. Uh, They tell us that false friendship is characterized by one thing, jealousy. False friendship is characterized by jealousy. Saul is jealous of David, but we have to ask the question. The text begs it. Why is Saul so envious of David that he would try to murder him? What gets him so angry? And simply put, the text tells tells us it comes down to a song lyric. One song lyric that enrages Saul. Remember the background of our passage. David has fought and killed Goliath, a giant that that Saul should have fought and killed, but didn't. Right? And then David wins the battle for the Israelites against the Philistines, a battle that Saul should have won for the Israelites, excuse me. And so First, Saul tries to join into the congratulations, and we see this in the very first part of our passage today. He gives a permanent residence to David at a royal court, verse 2. He gives, uh, the, he gives him a place as a general over men of war, in verse 5. But then that song that the women sang on victory day against Goliath gets under Saul's skin. And it pricks at his pride repeatedly until he can't get the song out of his head. I mean, we can imagine Saul singing it to himself, muttering between meetings, or maybe in the bathroom, finding himself singing the song. Saul has struck down his thousands, but David, David, has struck down his tens of thousands. Right? You can see him just getting more and more and more angry. He starts brooding in verse 8 over the song. (laughs) He starts analyzing every little phrase and every little word of the song, turning it over in his mind. So this is what every household of Israel thinks about me and David? So every woman and every man and every child thinks, Saul, he's okay. But David, 
David. He's in a whole nother league. Saul's a minor league guy. David's a major league guy. Saul's peewee football. <laughs> David is NFL. He's ten times the man of Saul. He's ten times better at everything. And we can imagine Saul as he goes back and forth and says, that's totally untrue. I'm the king. Gosh darn it. And David's just a man-child who plays the lute. Okay? Or he sort of, on the other hand, goes, oh, maybe, maybe they're right. Maybe I should have fought. I was a coward with Goliath, and I had 40 days of waiting because I'm such a coward. And I'm not sure, maybe I'm just full of nothing but hot air. But before we try to distance ourselves from Saul in this story, which is already kind of happening mentally and emotionally for you, we need to wrestle with the way that we struggle with jealousy and envy in our lives. Look, maybe we call it competitiveness or drive or ambition, but David's in majors in this emotion. We do, if we're honest. We understand that. Every one of you is here because you are striving to stand out, to be special and admired. That's why I was here. And jealousy is what happens when we're not admired. When somebody else stands out and is publicly proclaimed as special. And this happens all the time in a place like Davidson, doesn't it? Right? Everyone here was the high school standout. Everybody here can't be summa cum laude. We can't all get the lead part. We can't all earn MVP honors on the team. And this concern drives us. It pushes us more than we're willing to admit. Can we just say this? Like, is it? I know this is an admissions line, like Davidson admissions. Like, what's really the difference between being competitive with ourselves and just being competitive? Honestly, can we just talk about that for a second? <laughs> I feel like that might not hold water. And I'm going to be real honest because I think this is hard for you to hear. I'm going to tell my story. This is like my big sin. I struggle so much with envy and jealousy. It's the thing that kills me. I remember my freshman year at Davidson, I kept hearing about how everyone I knew had some sort of scholarship or was in some sort of foundation or had a grant or like went over to people, special dean's houses for like special dinners because they were great. And I was so upset. <laughs> I was so angry that I found myself applying for a scholarship grant in the spring of my freshman year. Not because I even really wanted it, but because of straight out of envy. Because I wanted to have a title. Or even now, this isn't just past tense in my life, like, oh, that was freshman Sid. He's totally over that. Look, I struggle this to this day. This is how, I struggle so much with other ministers' success. Look, I think about it this way. Here I am busting my hump, right? All I do is write sermons and meet with too many people and lead too many Bible studies and answer all these emails and all these texts, and I just take, and I drink way too much coffee. <laughs> And then I hear about my friend's ministry just taking off, right? There's just some sort of genuine revival happening over there. You know, they're like popping up circus tents in the middle of fields. People are like gathering from the, by the thousands. This person just gets up there and reads with a monotone from their manuscript, and everyone's getting converted. And, I, you know, and then all of a sudden, like, they're in Walmart, right? And they can't even say, make eye contact with people, but everyone talks about how relational that guy is. Right? 
And people just can't stop talking about this guy. They can't, like, every blog post he has becomes, like, a Facebook profile or gets retweeted. And I just, you know, and when I hear about that, my heart bleeds like an ulcer. It just does. I'm a mess. My first reaction is not to rejoice at what the Spirit's doing in that person's ministry or in that life. My first natural reaction is to find something wrong with what's going on. And then my second reaction, naturally, is to copy it as fast as possible. (laughs) Okay, so this is a bit of an exaggeration. The circus tents. Okay, but it's not that much of one at a heart level. I find myself feeling professional envy over other people and other friends all the time. My heart is sick. It's sick with the hatred of other successful people. It just is. And my point is this. I need Jesus' healing. And I think we all do. We all need his healing in this area. We need to believe even more that Jesus is for us. We need to believe even more that he laid down his life for us on a cross 2,000 years ago. But I'm getting way ahead of myself. Okay? Verses 6 through 16 also tell us that behind our jealousy is fear. A fear that expresses itself in anger. Look again at verse 8. There we see the root of Saul's jealousy. It's fear. He's afraid he's going to lose his kingdom. That David's going to become king instead of him. And this fear over his kingdom leads to an intense anger. And that anger, Saul tries to shove deep down in his heart in the darkest place he can imagine. But then all of a sudden it comes out sideways and causes a scene, right? All of a sudden, there's a spear and an attempted murder two times in verses 10 through 11. And then there's this sort of passive-aggressive way that Saul puts David at the front of the lines and tries to get him killed. Okay, you'll hear about that later in David's life with someone else. Okay, a little teaser. But he, and so, Dave, so Saul's trying to kill him with a spear in verses 10 through 11. And then verses 12 through 16, he's trying to kill David by the hand of the Philistines. But again, we need to stand in Saul's shoes for a moment, as uncomfortable as it is. We need to understand where the jealousy and the envy come from. And I'm going to use myself as a personal example again. Okay? Maybe that's uncomfortable for you. I'm sorry. Why do I get so worked up about other people's giftedness and other people's success? Because I'm afraid I'm going to lose my kingdom. I'm going to lose it. Whether that kingdom is RUF, the sermon... My intelligence that I thought I had in my freshman year of college, I still think I have. And this insecurity about my performance gets me really, really angry at other people, at their success and their public performance, whether it's in ministry or academic scholarship. And really the issue here is not whether we get angry and afraid, because everyone does. The issue is how we handle it when we get angry and afraid. And that issue is for Saul and it's for us. How do we handle the fear and the anger and the idols that are our kingdoms? Will we hide them, even from ourselves, and shove them into the darkness of our hearts so they come out sideways in ways we don't expect? Or will we get radically honest and confess them to ourselves and to God And trust that Jesus Christ's perfect faith and perfect peace is for us. It's for us. 
even when we're imperfect, even when we are jealous. If Saul and David are a warning of what friendship isn't, false friendship, Jonathan and David are, in verses 1 through 5, a model of what friendship is, true friendship. Okay, So one's a warning and one's a model. And one's a false friendship and one's a true friendship. And this is point two in your outline. That's where we are. Verses 1 through 5 tell us that true friendship is characterized not by jealousy, but by intimacy. By intimacy. Jonathan is intimate with David. And this is amazing and clearly supernatural. Do you know why? Because this context, the background for Jonathan's relationship with David is exactly the same as Saul's relationship with David. The same exact thing happened, right? David was chosen king, chapter 16. David was the champion who beat Goliath, chapter 17, right? And then think about this in the song of verse 7, that song lyric. Where's Jonathan in that song lyric? He's not even mentioned. So if Saul feels inferior to David, Jonathan feels just straight up left out. Like he wasn't even mentioned. But look at the way that Jonathan handles David's success. Verse 1 tells us, Jonathan loved David as his own soul. And this is because the soul of David was knit to the soul of Jonathan, verse 1 tells us as well. And really, we don't have good modern categories for this kind of love. Do we? It's kind of intimate. It's a love that selflessly knits together at the heart level, It's like soulmates. But we're not talking about romance. It's very hard for us not to make a romantic turn here. It's very hard for us not to sexualize intimacy. Think about it for a second. We assume that an intimate moment, when there's a soul connection, should naturally result in sex. Whether it's for the evening, or whether for a lifetime. But notice that the passage doesn't assume this sexual outcome. Jonathan has a love, an intimate love, but he consummates this intimacy not with sex, but with a covenant. Verses 3 and 4. Totally crazy. Verse 3 tells us Jonathan made a covenant with David. And so instead of uniting bodies, he takes a bunch of dead animals and cuts them in half and makes a thoroughfare between dead animal parts. Okay, this is what cutting a covenant meant in the Old Testament. It's like cutting a deal. Okay? You take animals, you cut them in half, and you walk between the animal parts. The hindquarters and the forequarters. Uh, anyway, I don't know what that word is. Um, but you do this so that you can show and you can promise steadfast love to the person you're making this agreement with, this promise with. And you say, basically, by walking through these animal pieces, let the Lord do to me as these animals, if I don't keep my end of the promise. Like, cut me in half. Okay, so it's pretty serious. It's like being blood brothers, but more blood. Okay? (laughs) Then in verse 4, Jonathan demonstrates what these words mean with his actions. Okay, and this is even more powerful. He literally, physically disrobes his royal robe, and he gives his weapons to David. In the face of a true king and a greater man, Jonathan literally gives up his claim to the throne. That's what he's doing. Do you realize that? Instead of competing with David and trying to destroy David for the sake of his kingdom, 
Jonathan pledges to serve David with selfless love, to serve David with his kingdom. Jonathan is emptying himself of his glory for David's sake. Jonathan is symbolically saying, I am for you, David. I'm for you no matter what. Of course, Jonathan serves as a model of true friendship, and we can apply this to our relationships, and I'll do it briefly. What would it look like to practice this kind of intentionality in our friendships? To consistently make time and effort to serve one another. Or diagnostically, let me ask you a question, or ask me a question too. How do we handle other people's giftedness and success? What would it look like to celebrate with them and to make much of them? What would it look like to give our time and our stuff to another person without expecting to get it back in return? I mean, after all, that's what Jonathan's doing. It's not like David's just going to borrow the kingdom, right? Oh, here, have it for a while and give it back after five minutes. Okay, that's not what's happening. Okay, he's giving him permanently the kingdom, not expecting it back. But I think there's a better and greater application here of Jonathan and David's relationship, and really of Saul and David's relationship for that matter, and as it points to Jesus' true friendship with those who follow him. And this is point three of the outline, for those of you who are still counting. Okay, we're still there. Okay? And look, for instance, we can't sacrificially love like Jonathan loves without knowing that Jesus sacrificially loves us. Do you get that? It's the basis of our intimacy is knowing that God intimately loves us. But further... We have to understand that no matter how much people promise to us, they're going to let us down. They will inevitably forget about us. They will pass us by. They will betray us out of fear and out of anger. And we will let ourselves down. Something someone says will get under our skin, and we will repeatedly prick our pride until we feel jealousy. And in these moments, we can't stand in front of a mirror and forgive ourselves. We can't say, Sid, you're forgiven. Okay? Because it's not going to stick. We need someone else, someone who loves us with a steadfast love that can actually keep his promise. We need someone who emptied himself of glory, Philippians 2, in order to lay down his life for another, John 15. Jesus loves us as a true friend. He's the, he's the one that Jonathan only dimly reflects. That Jonathan's a signpost towards. Do we realize that Jesus made himself naked for us? That he shed his royal robe for us? That he gave us his royal robe, an inheritance of the kingdom. At his crucifixion, Jesus exchanges the royal weapons of war for iron studs nailed into tender palms and tender feet. And at the same moment of his crucifixion, perfect love and selfless friendship meet in the persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And guess what happens? They're ripped apart like the animals so that we can enter into that relationship. So we can be have room to love and be loved intimately, even when we're likely to fail in our love. Even when we say we're going to love and we don't follow through. 
Look, and I'm going to try to illustrate this as much as I can. And I'm, this is my last illustration. We're almost done. I, I think it's just really important to capture this. What does it mean that Jesus' soul is stitched to those who believe? What does it mean that he has promised something that he cannot break his word on? That he's promised a love that he will follow through on? That he never fails? And I'm going to tell a story. There's a college football coach. I think it's the Florida State coach. Uh, I know we have to do one more football illustration. It's at the end of the season, okay? And I think you'll understand this even if you don't like football, okay? But, like, he just won the national championship. And he comes home, and there's, like, this giant parade. And there's this crowd, and there's this scene. And for an hour and a half, people are chanting his name, cheering his name in unison. And then he's signing autographs for an hour and a half. And then he came, and he doesn't even see his family, his wife and his children, for an hour and a half. And he said of that day, it was the best day of my life. I felt the best about myself I've ever felt. But then fast forward a year. Okay? His top-ranked football team lost the in-state rival, Florida, badly. He comes home on the bus. He goes to the stadium. Crickets. Nobody's there. He looks around. Not a single person waits to greet him let alone to cheer him or line up for his autograph. That is, except for his wife and children. They're there to meet him. And he says it was the most depressed he ever felt about himself. But do you know what the wife's, the coach's wife, told him on that day when no one else was there? At that soul-crushing moment? She said, you know, we're the only ones who ever really cared about you. We're the only ones who ever really cared about you. That's because win or loss, you belong to us. Win or loss, you belong to us. That is what God is telling us about our feelings and about every performance that we've ever done. Jesus died to purchase me by his blood. I belong to him. Win or loss. Whether I'm the best at everything I do in ministry, and you win every scholarship at Davidson, or I'm the absolute worst preacher who goes too long, and you lose everything, every shred of financial aid that you possibly had, Jesus will be there, waiting for us. Jesus stands waiting for us at the edge of the crowd of friends who always call and always text to invite us out. And Jesus stands solo when we're a jealous mess and we've made a scene again. That's the promise of Jesus Christ. That's the promise of this passage, a true friendship. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for this word. Thank you for the truth that it tells us, and I pray that you'd help us to believe it. Wherever we are with it, maybe we're not sold on this. Maybe we are sold on this, but we just struggle. I pray that you would massage this message into our hearts. Your words are so powerful and so true, and I pray that you would help us to believe that you care, that you're there, that you're there whether we do well or we do poorly. And I pray that that would be something that means a lot to us and that we treasure up in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.